Have you ever sought comfort? Have you ever yearned for peace of mind and relief? Perhaps you've been ill, maybe a loved one's nearing death. Have you ever been dealing with sadness and despair? Have you ever looked for comfort? Have you ever had financial problems, medical bills, loneliness, conflict, or a sense of loss of a sense of hope that make you feel you're deserted? We desire comfort. For many, comforts to bring hope, relief, a, a distraction. God's word views comfort as new life. The Holy Spirit called the Comforter, for he brings life from the Father to, for, and in us and with us. Comfort is to bring new life, to breathe new life into you. Comfort comes from healing, the end of a harsh situation, reconciliation, and more importantly, renewal from God. Now, we all have leisures and hobbies, don't we? And maybe those things that we do for fun maybe bring a sense to some of the stress and, we, and for the hope and comfort we wish. You know, a couple hours on a lake, maybe do a little fishing, go out for a meal and watch a movie. Uh, for some, it's a, it's a hobby. Um, visit a distant relative, fine-tune the garden and exercising. What do you do to find comfort? For the last 10 years of my wife and I life, um, we enjoy bicycling. Now, no, we don't go to Walmart or to Kmart and buy those cheap bikes. We go to bike shops like... Uh, uh, there's a new um, trick bike shop in Fort Wayne. There's even a nice bike shop up here in town, and we buy some rather decent bikes. They're rather expensive, but they uh, ride wonderfully. And where we find comfort is we'll take those bikes with us to paths and trails in northwest Ohio that go along the Maumee or they cut through woods and forests and fields. It is very comforting to get back toward nature, and no one's around and nothing's around. There's just peace, and we ride the comfort bikes, and they just ride beautifully. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful experience, and that brings comfort to us. Now, you wouldn't guess it, but if you go to Trek in Fort Wayne or you buy one of these bikes, can you guess what they're called? Comfort bikes. Really, that's what they're known as. Why? Because they're not something you'd use at the Tour de France or the Race with. with. They're not the cheapies you get at Walmart or Kmart. Uh, but they're called comfort bikes because a lot of people get into riding trails and um, just getting out to nature, to God's creation, and relaxing. They're called comfort bikes. So for us believers, the great comfort is to pray, confess our sins, and the Holy Spirit speak new life to our troubled soul. For he too sought for comfort. Um, now you know I'm a movie guy. Um, based upon a true story that took place in Cleveland, Ohio, um, he was a surgeon. He found himself in a rather deserted and desolate place. His wife Marilyn was murdered. Then he was convicted of that murder himself. Now, have you heard of this name before? Dr. Samuel Shepard, you know I'm talking about? There was large media and police circus that followed him, and for years he tried to uh, find himself, get himself innocent because he's injured on the attack, and he sought comfort. Now, this movie, it's a rather blockbuster movie, and I've seen if you've seen it, it's called The Fugitive, and it's loosely based upon Dr. Samuel Shepard's life. Now, here in the movie, Harrison Ford plays Dr. Kimball, and he comes home, and he finds his wife murdered. And coming home, he wrestles with a one-armed man who kills his wife, but he himself is convicted of murder. And so he's in desolation. He's destitute. Um, he's deserted. Um, he's in a wasteland of hurt and pain. And being put in chains, he's taken, going to be taken to a, a penitentiary, uh, to a prison in southern Illinois, and there, a train crash occurs, and there he is free, and he goes back to Chicago to prove himself innocent. 
Because if he proves himself innocent, he can find comfort, he can find righteousness, and he can go back to doing what he loves to do, being a surgeon and helping others. Many of he's a fugitive. He lives in a wasteland where there is no comfort. He's destitute and in pain. If you want to know the rest of the, the movie, go rent it yourself or don't fall asleep until the end of the sermon because I'll talk about it then, okay? Promise? All right, great. So these people, too, found themselves deserted, destitute in a wasteland. That's a picture of the Israelites being hauled off into Babylonian captivity about 580 years before Christ is born. Uh, they weren't convicted wrongly of murder, but they were rightly chastised for being idolaters. And God said, that's enough. And so what God did is God destroyed their temple, he burned down their vineyards, he ruined their homes, and he sent many of them off into exile into Babylon, where there they would be disciplined of their idolatry, and they lived in a wasteland. And sometimes you and I, we might feel we're exiled. We might feel we live in a wasteland. We might feel like, we might feel like um, Harrison Ford, um, looking for justice, looking for peace, and we deal with the stress of our lives. And to their situation, and to our situation, God speaks. Can you read these words with me? So to us and to the people of Israel who are in Babylonian captivity, God says this. I'm going to bring you comfort and peace, but I'm actually going to take you back to the Garden of Eden. I'll make things so good, I'll make it like before there was no sin. Remember, God made creation perfect, and in the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve, and I will make your wastelands like a garden. God's bringing his promise to them that things will be very different. God blesses us with the rock of his salvation and the promise of his word. Now, I don't know about you, but, but whenever we hear of Isaiah, this is what I think of. I think of an old guy who dresses sort of odd. He does a lot of talking, does a lot of writing, and a lot of it I don't understand. So I think maybe, okay, pastor, you're talking about the prophet Isaiah. I have no clue who that is. I know he's someone important. He's in the Bible, and he's sort of an old guy who writes. But Isaiah writes like 100 years before Israel takes, takes um, captivity, takes captivity in Babylon, and he speaks the word of the Lord. Now, the best way I can explain how Isaiah speaks is I'm going to use a Disney illustration. Can anyone guess where that scene's from? What movie? Take a guess. It came out in 1937. I'm sure, many of you are alive. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Now, I'm a big fan of Walt Disney. Let me say it again. I'm a big fan of Walt Disney. He was like this, had this great vision for entertainment. He really was a, a technological genius. He understood how to put things in film. Um, and so Walt Disney gambled everything he had on a fully animated cartoon movie called Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. How many of you have seen it, okay? All right, great, you've seen it, okay. Now, people told him, Walt, you're crazy. You're going to lose everything you have making a cartoon because nobody wants to see a full movie with a bland background and a cartoon figure going back and forth. But Walt Disney said, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come up with this technology that's called a multi-plane camera. And I'm going to have my artists take my movie and they're going to layer it in six, seven layers and they're going to add depth to it. 
So it's going to be 3D, and they're going to add height to it. It's going to make the, 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 the picture a lot more clear. It's going to make the movie experience a lot more immense, and people will be able to follow the storyline. And so Walt Disney gambled the house to make Snow White and the Seven Dwarves using this multi-plane system. It's really state-of-the-art at the time. And when people saw it, they loved it. Now, do you know who Clark Gable is? You know what I'm talking about? Back then, he was a hunk. Clark Gable was at the screening. He loved Snow White and the Seven Dwarves so much. It's true. He actually cried at the end of it. Okay? So what Walt Disney did is he used this multi-plane, many screens, to bring an animated movie to life that captured even adult audiences, right? Because let's face it, we as adults, we sometimes like Disney movies, right? Because they're made so well. Well, I want to share two things about that. First of all, as my Christian apologetics professor in college, so apologetics is defending the Christian faith, he said, really, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is sort of a Christocentric movie. What do you mean by that? Well, think about it. Here's a beautiful bride-to-be, and she lives underneath a really arrogant and vain queen who can't stand her beauty, and so she feeds her a poison apple, and she goes into a trance and nears death, and who has to come and save her? Prince Charming with love's true kiss. And when Prince Charming comes to this bride-to-be who's under the curse of an evil queen who feeds her a poison apple. She's healed, and they live how long? Well, let me see. A bride who's under a curse of an evil being who feeds poison to this person, and along comes a champion and a hero who with his love is going to save her. And they live how long? What does that sound like? Does that sound like Christianity? So there it is. But more importantly, when I think about Isaiah, what Isaiah does is Isaiah is going to speak God's word in layers. So he's going to tell the people in Babylon, the Israel captives, he's going to tell us with our stress and our wastelands and the problems we have. First of all, he's going to take us back to the Garden of Eden and say, listen, I can renew things. Then he's going to take us, and let me go ahead and read this to you. He's going to take us back to the rock from which we are cut. He's going to take us back to Abraham. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham? Now, who is Abraham's wife? Sarah. And remember, he said that from you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And Abraham saying, God... This sounds like a good plan, but you're expecting a child from me, and my wife is barren. She can't have children. And God, I hate to inform you, but I'm 100 and she's 90. You haven't been around very long, have you, God? We understanding the math there? We call the biological clock. But we know how God worked. God gave him a son by the name of who? Isaac. And so, so what Isaiah says is, not only am I going to take you back to the Garden of Eden, but I'm going to take you back to the promise I made to Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac comes. And then he says, let me go ahead and read this, and then he says, um, later on, he writes this, my righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation's on the way. Then he says, I'm going to take you to Christ, who's going to be about 600 years later, he's going to die and rise. And then Isaiah speaks this, he says, Lift your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish with smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. I'm going to take you to Judgment Day. So when you and I, we're in the, des the destitute of our life, we're in desolation. When you and I feel like we're in the wastelands, when, when you and I feel like uh, we're lost in despair, 
What Isaiah does is he said, listen, I am God. I will make things like the Garden of Eden. I keep my promise like I kept to Abraham and Sarah. I promised you my son who will die and rise and he's here. And one day I will come back and I'll bring you all to glory to live heavily ever after. And hence, Isaiah uses that multi-plane technique. He speaks to us to the whole depth and riches of God. He gives us an immense experience, an immense blessing, the promises that he has in God. And that's what Isaiah speaks to them, and that's what Isaiah speaks to us. Now, there's sort of a timeline that, that Isaiah lives, but notice he goes all the way back to creation and all the way to Judgment Day. And um, I want to talk to you about wastelands, because Jesus knows about wastelands. He knows about being a fugitive. He knows what it's like to be an outcast. He knows what it's like to be without hope. Well, he's born where? In a barn. And Herod wanted to kill him. They had to flee to Egypt. And then he went to Galilee. And what good could come from Galilee? And then he was crucified in a place called what? Golg- was it, what was it called? Gal- what? Golgotha, which is really like a waste dump outside of Jerusalem. And then Isaiah said, he was assigned a grave of the wicked. In a rich man's grave he went. So Jesus knows the wasteland and he rose again so he can identify and he forgives and redeems us in our situation. The whole depth of God's riches. Jesus understands the wastelands that we might one day go back to the garden one day when he comes back to live in his mercy and grace that we might be redeemed. Um, Because there are the wastelands of our life. We see it all the time. We watch it in the news. We deal with the conflict in our life. People don't get along with us. We we don't get along with them. We see it in health. We have loved ones who are dealing with health issues. My father's dealing with some extreme health issues. And we sort of live in those places. But once again, Isaiah speaks, listen, I keep my promise just like I did to the rock, Abraham. One day you'll experience the gardens again. You know my grace and forgiveness. And one day I'll come back to take you to be with me. I like what Martin Luther says. Can you all read this with me? That's not deal nor has he ever dealt with human beings other than the word of promise. So how does God deal with us? He always says, look at my promise. Look at my promises I made to you. That's how God deals with us. Look at promises I made to you. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Do you remember what I told them about the Garden of Eden? Do you remember Jesus who died and rose? Remember that I will take you home? That's how God deals with us. In our situations, he deals with us with his promises for hope and mercy. What a blessing that is. You see, and to this rock, Jesus Christ, who lived in the wasteland, he's the son of God. We build our church on Jesus the rock, and our confession is based on Jesus the rock. Well, I want to go back to the movie Fugitive. Can I go back to the movie Fugitive? So Harrison Ford's in Chicago trying to prove his innocence, and Tommy Lee Jones is like this no-nonsense no United States Marshal who's trying to hunt him down. And eventually... Harrison Ford proves his innocence, but there comes a place where Harrison Ford and other marshals corner in on him. And they know that Harrison Ford, the doctor, is innocent, okay? They know it. And so eventually, he gets in a fight with people who really tried to corner him, people who abused him, and he gets in a fight. And finally, Tommy Lee Jones says, I know you're innocent, but I gotta take you in. So here's the scene, and they're in the back of a car, okay? Now, Tommy Lee Jones... Hard-nosed United States Marshal knows Harrison Ford's innocent. There's a wonderful scene there. And so here's Harrison Ford in handcuffs. Tommy Lee Jones takes off the handcuffs, throws them away. His hand's bruised. He gets out ice packs, put an ice pack on his hand because that man's a surgeon, and there's comfort. 
So I think about you and I. Think about God who brings us comfort. In the desolations, in the, in, the, in the sad part of our life, he's there with us. Wonderful scene of comfort for him. Innocent, I'm going to take you back to where you need to be, where you can help people. Same for us. God's promises for us in our situation. Take you back where you can serve others. So how about this for a closing thought? Can you all read it with me? Jesus, lead thou on, to our rest is one. And although the way be cheerless, we will follow calm and fearless. Guide us by our hand to our fatherland. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.